we are going to look into our favorite topic in our study. It's called Sin and Death. Sin and Death. So God created man, created the world, everything was good, perfect, then he created a woman. No, I'm just messing with you. Didn't get anything thrown at me. And this is um, a study of doctrine that is very important to future studies when we want to get into the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, um, and our redemption. Uh, because if we don't understand the doctrine of sin and we mess around with the doctrine of sin, we end up messing around with other things. And just to give you one example, okay, uh, if you mess around with the doctrine of sin, you end up with baptizing infants. Okay? If you mess around and get the doctrine of sin wrong, you end up as a Calvinist. And only a few people get to be saved, the ones God chose before he made anyone. All of that is built upon the doctrine of sin. And so when you go to Calvinism and you look at their tulip what's T right off the bat total depravity of man because they mess up the doctrine of sin and they make sin uh, incapable of doing anything and their favorite thing is dead is dead so you're incapable of doing anything righteous including believing in Jesus and that is their definition of sin or depravity and it's wrong that is not the biblical definition of sin is incapacity to do right the, the definition of sin is having done wrong or not doing what is right, not that the inability to do what is right. And so that's a big difference. So the doctrine of sin, while we might say, well, that's a hard one, I don't really talk about it um, because it makes me nervous because we all have sin that we're dealing with, habitual sins that we're struggling with. Um, we have a history of sin that we like to forget and we should try to at least distance ourselves from it. We understand that we are in battle against sin, but that doesn't mean we don't study it. It's kind of like our demonology. Uh, we don't really want to face it, but we know the necessity of it and the importance of, of, of not putting our head in the sand like an ostrich, and, which they don't actually do that, but uh, to bury our heads in the sand and try to forget they exist. You open yourself up to incredible dangers, and the same thing in the department of sin, and it's a result of death. So, this is called homartiology. Homartiology um, is, is early in our study because it impacts so many other areas, and we want to talk about some of those other areas, and we're going to have to keep referencing sin. So we want to set this right first. So we're going to move pretty quickly through this. It should be familiar material to most of you, um, but we want to look these up. I've asked you to find the references. I did it the opposite. Instead of giving you the references and then you write in the definition, I gave you the definition, asked you to find the references. And so you have an opportunity. What is sin? The Bible uses many different descriptions for sin. Among them are missing the mark. Where is that? Romans 3.23. This is one of my favorite, favorite definitions of sin. Why? I use it all the time with young people. 
That's why it's first on the list. Missing the mark. You fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because too many people, in their view of their sin, say, well, here's my sin, and here's all the good things I do, and at the end of my life, I just have to make sure that I've done more good things than I've done evil things to get into heaven. And they think God has a scale, a weight scale, positive and negatives. I just have to make sure my positives are a little bit more than my negatives. I have to have a positive balance in my good deeds account to get to heaven, to sneak in that door. That we're going to stand before Peter, somehow St. Peter's Gate, and like Peter has, I don't know where this stuff goes, like Peter has the judge of all the earth, and he's not, um, and that we just have to measure out those things, is it good or bad? Um, no. Missing the mark is we've fallen short of the mark, and the mark is a standard. So here's a mark, and you've fallen short. Do, do, do. And that, and that, it doesn't matter how many good things you do, you still fall short. You're still just too short. You know, you have your favorite ride at the amusement park. Remember, you took your kids there, and, and we take Andrea there. She still can, and Mary Schmidt, she can't ride those rides because they're so short. They've missed the mark. They don't measure up. And so I use this because people understand that, oh, you have to be this tall to get to heaven. See, now it's not about weighing whether it's good or bad. Now it's, have I missed the mark? What's the mark? The glory of God. Are you perfect like God is perfect? Are you holy like God is holy? Have you missed that mark? Well, we all fall short, Romans 3.23 says. Let's go to another one. Lawlessness. Anybody know the passage for that? Sin is lawlessness. 1 John. If one person has all the answers and nobody else did their homework, then that one person gets a gold star and gets to answer every question. The rest of you should be ashamed. We don't use shame enough in our culture. The Bible uses it all the time. I had one guy leave my church because I said you should be ashamed of yourself. He said, no, you, no one should be, have shame. I was shamed as a child. I was like, well, not enough. All right, first John. Three, four. Whoever commits sin, chapter 3, verse 4, 1 John. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. It is breaking the law. How many murders do you have to commit to become a murderer? One. How many things do you have to steal to become a thief? One. Okay, how many lies do you have to tell to become a liar? One, this is the whole premise of a way of the master evangelism where they use the law and they encounter people and they say, oh, do you think you're good enough to get to heaven? And they set up the Ten Commandments as the minimum requirements for heaven and the law. So they go to the law and they say, well, let's see how you measure up. Uh, you ever lose, use the Lord's name in vain? Well, yeah, everyone has. It doesn't matter if everyone has. Have you? Yes. Oh, well, you're guilty. You ever told a lie? Oh, you're guilty. And they go right through the Ten Commandments and pretty much, did you disobey your parents? Yep, guilty. He says, so by your own account, you're guilty. And this is what they do is they go through that. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to communicate that you're a sinner by looking at the law. 
that lawlessness, not keeping the law, is sin, which is very different because we understand that. It's not this scale thing of my good and bad deeds way outweigh each other. No, it's once you commit that crime, you're guilty of that crime. Okay? And it doesn't matter how many people you saved in your life. So you can be a medical doctor and have saved hundreds of people uh, and brought people back from the brink and then go out and murder your wife. You're still going to jail because you're still a murderer. They don't outweigh each other. You've committed the crime. You've got to do the time. Okay? Well, sin is lawlessness. So it's another good definition that we've lost track of and, and aren't doing. And then the breaking of the law is, is a couple places. You might have, um, by the way, um, well, let's keep going. Uh, lawlessness, by the way, is used about 11 times in the Bible to define sin. Breaking of the law, Matthew 5, 19 it could also be, you could also have James 2.10. Someone want to read Matthew 5.19? How many commandments do you have to be broken? The least commandment. What is the least commandment in the Old Testament? What is the most insignificant commandment in the Old Testament? Jesus Christ says you break the least of these commandments, you're guilty. And by the way, James 2.10 says that if you've broken one, you're guilty of breaking it all. Right? Isn't that what James 2.10 says? That's whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all of it. The law condemns you. So, what's the least commandment you can think of? You're thinking of one of the ten? That's the biggies. What are you talking about? Do not cover your neighbor's manservant. Don't overeat. Okay? Um, the last one we'll say is the least, okay? Do not covet um, your neighbor's stuff, all right? Which we do all the time. In fact, that's the whole premise of the American economy is keeping up with the Joneses. Covet what he has. All right? Um, and we need more stuff. That is the whole premise of our entire capitalistic economy, I would contend, is you need more stuff. And so you got to go to Stuff Mart and get more stuff. Okay? That's what you got to do. Um, and that'll make you happy if you have more stuff. And so we do that. And you say you break that commandment, the least of the commandments, you're guilty according to the words of Jesus himself. So we always think it's the biggies, you know, murder and these horrible things. Um, but Jesus Christ says, you break the least of the commands to each other men do so, be least in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, and we're going to talk about James here in a little bit because James talks a lot about sin and its development. Transgression, we're, that's a very, it's used 44 times. You had 44 choices. So I don't know which verses you use. Um, let's uh, pick out Romans. I'm going to pick out one Romans 4.15. In the Romans road. Romans 4.15. Someone want to read that for me, please? Transgression. It is a breaking of the law. Again, it's just a different word, but it is an important word. It is that you have... You have uh, transgress, that is, you have trampled upon it. And it's used again in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
verse 14. If someone would like to turn there and read that one, 1 Timothy 2.14, because I can't find my place anywhere in this Bible. I should have brought my old one because it would open up automatically to these places. Fell into transgression. She transgressed the commandment. And so you have a commandment, you break that commandment, it's a transgression, you've trampled upon it. Okay, and so we say don't transgress, and that is to don't break or violate a command. All right, so we have commands that we have been given, have we not as Christians? Do we violate those commands? And there are different levels. You might say, well, if, if God commands you to go, as this morning, and to share the gospel, uh, go and, and, and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them, and you choose not to do that or be a part of that process, you are transgressing his commands. His command you do something, you've ignored it. So it's not just doing bad things, it's not doing the things you're told to do. Both of these are sin. Let's keep going. Disobedience. Where can we find the word disobedience to describe sin? This is a big one used in Romans chapter 5. Colossians 3, good. Romans 5, Colossians 3, there's, there's, I have 11 opportunities you have to pick. I'm going to pick one out of another book, Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews. This is an important passage with regard to sin that we're going to get to a little bit later on as well. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, because this has reference to something. 2, verse 2. Hebrews 2, 2, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast in every transgression, there's that word transgression, and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? And so here, disobedience, what is the disobedience specifically that's concerning to the author of Hebrews? Rejecting salvation. You are call, God calls all men everywhere to what? Repent. Well, if disobedience is sin, and God wants everyone to be saved, then, but only the people he elected can get saved, then how can you be disobediently how can you be disobey obediently? Because you're doing what God wanted you to do, because he doesn't know. God commands all men everywhere to repent. He says, go to call all nations, all peoples, uh, to salvation. And so, uh, the, the disobedience is just to disobey sometimes that you're supposed to believe. This is a disobedient generation because they have the signs and they don't believe them. Unbelief. And then, of course, unrighteousness. And uh, I would pull out the one probably, there's, you have several choices here. Um, I have 18 of them listed. Uh, one that I would choose because it develops the idea of how heinous sin can get is in Romans 1. Okay, in Romans 1 where you have the unrighteousness that uh, just keeps getting worse and worse until their conscience is burned with a hot iron and then they are only fit for destruction. And so, unrighteousness is that idea of not doing what is right. So we have all these various words. You can sin by commission and omission. Those are the two key concepts. I've already introduced them to you. By not doing what you should do is omission. 
doing what you should not do is commission. These are the do's and don'ts, okay? And how many of you grew up, I grew up, oh, Christianity is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Ever heard that? Okay, that's how I was confronted with it. Oh, you guys are all about do's and don'ts, you Baptists, or you Christians, you Bible thumpers, whatever term they wanted to use. Uh, it's all about do's and don'ts. What are they saying? They don't want any rules in their life. What would life be like with no rules? Go to the Chaz. Go to Seattle, Portland, Chicago. Go to those places where, there's, where they want to remove all rules. And what happens? Violence, destruction. And, and when you look at this, um, this is why the do's and don'ts make everything good. Tell me one thing that isn't improved by do's and don'ts. Try to play a game with no rules. Yeah, that's at my house. If you play one of my games, I get to change the rules because it's my game. <laughs> the grandchildren, oh yeah. All right, you have do's and don'ts. That's what makes life livable. And I don't understand the complaint against that. And so we have do's, do these things, and to not do those is sin. It's called sin of omission. What was the first sin? Was it an omission or commission? Commission means you did something you weren't supposed to do. Omission says you failed to do something you were told to do. What was the first opportunity? To, the first sin, by the way, was commission. He was told, don't eat from that tree, and he ate from the tree. She did. First sin was she ate from the tree. Sin of commission. But that wasn't their first opportunity to sin. The first opportunity to sin was a sin of omission. And they passed that one. What was that? Name the animals. It was before there was a woman. See, this is just more proof that it was the woman that was the problem. Okay? When he got a command before Eve, name all the animals, he obeyed. So he did not commit a sin of omission. If he failed to do that, he says, I don't feel like doing that today. Um, sin. That's sin. Because God commands you to do it, and you didn't do it. And so then, after naming all the animals, there was not an animal suitable for him as a companion, and God took and took his rib, made woman, and then the next thing you know, we have a sin of commission. They did something they weren't supposed to do. That's our two categories of sin, but there's a third category, and that comes under number, Roman numeral number two. How did sin start? And we already talked about that point. This is the fall of man. Uh, the law was don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Satan comes along, tempts them, and the sin was that they ate of the tree. And then she gave to her husband, and he ate also. All right. So Eve ate of the tree, she was deceived, and gave to her. And the verbiage there in the Hebrew is that he, she just handed it right to him, that he was there the whole time and should have interjected at some point in the conversation between the woman and the serpent. He should have exercised his leadership role and interjected at some point and said, no, that's not what God said. No, that's not what God said, because both the serpent and the woman got it wrong. They both misquoted God. Because what did Eve add to it? Don't touch it. Did God tell him not to touch it? No, he just said, don't eat it. Don't add to the law. Law is hard enough to keep without you adding to it. Um, every time they have the 
the state senate legislature, they talk about how successful legislature it is. How do they measure the success of the legislature? How many laws did they pass, bills did they pass? That is not the measure of the success of a legislature. A successful legislature will meet and revoke laws and pass no new ones. That is an extraordinarily successful legislative meeting. No new laws. Don't add laws when we're already burdened with so many already that we can't keep them all. Okay? And, and just imagine, every year they gather to pass more laws. Every year. We are insane as a society to think that that's a good thing. So Eve added to God's command, and once you put it in your hand and you think, now I've broken that law. And by the way, that's not something new. That's what the Jews did. They set up what they called hedge laws to keep you from breaking the law. Always a mistake. Because once you have a sense of guilt, you broke the hedge law, breaking law is no big deal. And God condemns that. Jesus condemned that among the Pharisees. So we have the fall of man is how sin started. Now the question is, what happens to everyone? And we have, what's his sin's effect? Uh, man became sinful. Everyone is born with a sin nature, making us sinners by birth. This is often referred to as man's original sin. Logical attempts to deal with man's original sin have produced many false practices and poor theologies. In addition to being born in sin, we're all sinners by practice. So, how do you get your sin? You should already know this. You tell me. How do you get your original sin? I don't like that term, but how do you get it? How does it come from Adam to you? Okay, there's multiple views of this. So what you are describing to me in terms of I want very specifically, where did you get your sin nature? From your daddy. Okay, that's called seminal headship of Adam. That is that all of us were in the loins of Adam when he sinned, which is a concept in Scripture that's consistent. And thus, remember in Hebrews, uh, that how did, um, uh, how did Levi pay tithes to Melchizedek? Because he was in the loins of his father when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And therefore, the, even the Levitical priesthood had to pay tithes to Melchizedek. It's a big ar developed argument in Hebrews about being, because Abraham represented all of you because you were still seminally in him. Okay? It's called seminal headship. Okay? It's where we get the word semen. Um, and so it's from the father. That's called, there's another view that's called the federal headship of Adam, that he spiritually was representing the human race, and therefore we are all guilty. Um, that one doesn't work. And why doesn't it work? Because Christ would have had original sin, because he was also human. And so if he represented the entire human race, Jesus Christ became part of the human race, he would have been under the federal headship of Adam. So you would have to have an exception clause. And that's nowhere in Scripture. Uh, where it very clearly says in the Bible that it is from Adam all men became sinners. So that we, I would hold the seminal, if you want to hold the federal headship, that's okay, but it's going to get you into some trouble later on. Uh, and I'm not going to rescue you out of that. <laughs> You're just going to be stuck in the mire. 
of that, of how did Jesus become, why is the, why is the virgin birth necessary is the question I would ask you. Only if you believe in seminal headship is a virgin birth necessary. If you believe in federal headship of Adam, there's no need for a virgin birth. There needs to be something weird happen with Jesus outside of that. The virgin birth is necessitated by the passing down of sin, not from mother to child, but from father to child. So it is your dad's fault. Okay? I know women started it all, but men, we carry the load. Okay? It's our fault. All right? So we, we pass it on even though we didn't initiate it all. So, this is a precursor to what's coming. Um, does anyone go to hell for Adam's sin? Why not? Because Romans... Because Christ's sacrifice, you guys are well trained here. Um, because Christ is the second Adam. Everyone touched by Adam's sin is touched by Christ's sacrifice. That is called the second Adam aspect of Christ's sacrifice. So there are two components of Christ's salvation provision. He provided not only for the sin you commit or omit, but he also provides for the sin that you are inherit. I prefer the word inherit instead of original. Your inherited sin, Christ paid for. He's the second Adam. Everyone, Romans 5 says, touched by Adam's sin is touched by Christ's sacrifice. That is not universal salvation. That is universal provision for your inherited sin. So it's not inherited sin that sends you to hell. It is your own sin. And that makes a very blessed state for everyone who has no of their own sin and just inherited sin they already paid for, which is really precious because that means every child goes to heaven that dies. Every baby, every infant, every preborn is going to heaven, which is why heaven is such a mammoth place and hell is such a small place, even though very few people get saved. Yes? How do, the question is, how do those that practice infant baptism view and understand the verses in Romans chapter 5? The position that I've taught you all these years is not widely held. Okay? The normal position is that that is not referring to original sin at all. And they don't even bring it into the conversation in Romans chapter 5. And that's, I think, a mistake, and that's why I teach it the way I teach it. So most of them would just say, well, um, and, and some of the Calvinists even say, well, see, Jesus only provided for many. Well, it also says that Adam, many became sinners. And through Jesus Christ, many became righteous. And to me, if you use the same word to describe a group, you're talking about the same group. So therefore, to me, everyone touched by Adam's sin has to be touched by Jesus' sacrifice and I'm not going to say I'm the only one that's ever taught this, but I did not learn this from my theology texts. So you, um, so I always tell you that. I pretty much try to consistently teach that. Most of them do not view those passages as dealing with that at all, which is, I think, a mistake. So they don't even bring that into bear, that Jesus Christ is the second Adam. Which I don't know how you miss that, frankly. To me, it's really plain. 
Okay, good question. So we get into trouble because now if Christ didn't cover original sin, something else has to cover, and that's where infant baptism came from. That's where um, you have all these weird teachings. And remember, the Catholic teaching is that if you didn't have infant baptism and your child dies, your child burns in hell forever. That is their official position. That has historically been the case. And so that includes all the unborn that die in the womb. That includes all of those that die in infancy um, that die before they get baptized. And when Anabaptists refused to baptize infants, that made a lot of mommies mad. And in fact, much of the persecution was stemmed from that because they said, how can you condemn my baby to death to hell by not baptizing them? And that error caused a lot of persecution of Anabaptists in Europe. A lot of it. Because moms were like, they won't baptize my baby, and now the baby dies. What they don't tell you is how many babies died from baptism. Because... And they, there are so many babies dying from baptism because they would inhale water, because they used to do infant baptism by submersion, immersion, <laughs> some immersion, and they would inhale water, get pneumonia, and die. And so that's when they went to sprinkling. So we would have never had sprinkling as baptism if we didn't have babies being baptized. That's the origins. Just read the church history, figure it out. And so... We have sprinkling as called baptism because we were baptizing babies because we thought we had to get rid of original sin. And the way a Catholic gets rid of sin is just ridiculous. Okay? And nothing to do with Scripture. So, um, let's look at... Now, I'm going to use a, a term that many say, well, that's Calvinism. And I use a term, man is pervasively depraved. And um, I'm okay if you want to scratch out the word depraved and just put the word sin technically depraved just means that it has been affected by sin uh, but Calvinists have taken depravity and defined it as inability to to do right to do anything good and so they have taken the concept of depravity and said it's inability um, you cannot do anything good you cannot believe you cannot have faith you cannot you can't you're dead in sin and any exercise of your own will will always be sin, which is why you can't trust in Jesus unless the Holy Spirit makes you a new person first. Then you can believe or will believe. What I'm trying to get at here is that there are lots of parts of you that are affected by sin, not just one thing. It's not just your soul that needs to be saved. That's what I want to get at here. So let's look at these passages. This time I gave you the passages. You tell me what part of you, and one of those was wrong. I think it was Romans 1. The last one should have been Romans 1.26. I think I gave you something else. What do you have? 125 should have been 26. So, Jeremiah 17.9. Your heart. Your heart is deceitful. Heart is the center not of your feelings, but of your will. So yes, your will is deceitful and desperately wicked. Ephesians 2, 3. 
Your flesh is affected by sin, and your mind is also involved there. Let's look at Romans 8, 7. What part of your body is affected by sin there? Your mind. Okay, so your thoughts are... are so sin pervades us. There's every part of our body, our will, our flesh, our mind. Romans, or Genesis 8, 21, what is that one? The imagination of man. You say, wasn't that your thoughts? No, imagination is different from thoughts, and I'll tell you how they're different. One's based upon reality, and one isn't. One's fantasy. Okay? And so the difference between creativity, which I always try to encourage in your thinking, being creative, and being imaginative, is whether there is imagination in the Bible is always presented as sinful. Imagination of man is always sinful in the Bible, everywhere it's used. Imagine that. Your imagination, because it's not based upon reality. So all fantasy is in that realm of imagination, because it's not based upon what's real. Creativity is built upon what is real. So if I encounter a problem, and I look around at my resources, to how to meet that problem, and I come up with a unique way of meeting that problem, that's creativity, and we are encouraging that. I would always encourage creativity. Fantasy and imagination, the Bible condemns. It's evil. Now, does that mean creativity is not touched by sin? Yes, it is. It's also affected by sin, uh, which is interesting to look in Genesis and see where some of the technological developments of man came from. Where did they come from? The first technological developments of man. The line of Cain. It was his, what, grandkids or great-grandkids that were responsible for metallurgy and for music, and they developed all these things. And, and portable domiciles, the first RVs, they're called tents, but... They devised all that. It was the line of Cain that did that, not the line of Abel or the righteous line of Seth that developed those technologies. All right, what about Romans 7.24? What part of man is marred by sin? Your body itself. How is body and flesh different? Okay, a lot of time your flesh is tied into your functions, your desires, and your body is often the what we would call the parts, the bone, muscle, tissue. Uh, but the process is of your body is the fleshly desires. So the desires of your flesh, whether they be uh, your appetite, that would be a flesh. And so certainly your body is involved in that, but you can bring your body into submission and, and curb your fleshly appetites for this, that appetite for food, appetite for uh, immoral relationships, appetite for attention, appetite for all those things, okay? And so that's a, there's a slight variance between flesh and body. They aren't really synonyms in the Bible always. Sometimes they are. And Romans 1.26, what does that one say? Their passions your desires, okay? And so all of these are touched from 
are affected. So we have all of this sin has, has not left any part of you unmarred. But does that mean you are incapable in any part of you doing good? On your own? Can sinful people do good things? How? Okay, they can do helpful things. They can do loving things. Um, and but Isaiah, how does it? How does God describe their righteousness? Filthy rags. Okay, the menstrual cloth. The thing I want to dispose of and get rid of. Um, it is. It is. All of your righteousness are as filthy rags. Why are their righteousness as filthy rags? Because you're trusting in them instead of God. Which means that men do have righteousness of their own. But in God's view, it is not salvifically beneficial. Okay, please understand that passage. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. What does that mean men are capable of? Righteousness. Okay? You're capable of doing righteousness. The problem is they trust in their own righteousness, which is never sufficient for salvation. Because your righteousnesses are not viewed beneficially by God to redeem you. So you do have self-righteousness. Okay? That I that I'm doing, and so all of those people Jesus condemned that were following the law, they were self-righteous. They were scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the law, but they were trusting in their keeping of the law instead of realizing the law is there to teach me not that I am good, but that I'm bad. So they were doing right in keeping the law, but they were applying it wrong. Were they saved or unsaved people? They were unsaved people that were, they were doing right things. And the Calvinists would never take that position, but it is a biblical position. That people can do right things. So while every part of your body is touched by sin, it is not made incapable of doing other than sin. Okay, you can do, you can try to keep the Ten Commandments. I try to be a good person. Well, let's see how you're doing. Okay? And again, we go back to our definition of sin. How many parts of the law do you have to break to be guilty of all? One little break. The least of the laws. And so again, you've got to have a good feel for sin and not these massive sins. Well, homosexuality, that's the last sin. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry, I've got to hold my hands down. Oh. Okay. It's time to go anyway. So we'll pick up here on Sin's Effect and try to finish it up. I was hoping to finish this all tonight. But we'll get through um, the effect. But I wanted to really talk about pervasive sin, that it touches your marred, but don't confuse sinful with incapable. Because then you're going to walk right into Calvinism. So I, I use the word depraved in its true sense, not in its Calvinistic sense. All of your body soul, spirit, mind, will are all affected by sin, but not to the point 
that we are incapable of doing not sin. Okay? The problem is if you trust in your own righteousness, then that is abhorrent to God. Because you, if you're honest, you know you're not righteous enough. Because you've missed the mark. You've missed the mark. You've fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why that's an important definition of deal. Well, let's pray, get you guys out of here. We'll pick up on this, Lord willing, next week. I am considering uh, on the 20th, that Lord's Day, of not having an evening service or of turning it over to one of you men to lead. Um, this group coming up, you turn for Christ, wants to go up on Sunday afternoon, evening, and have a service up there at the Bahamas Sunday night and then Monday having devotions. So I'm really teaching there for three days while they're up there. So we're not just doing construction work. I'm going to be ministering God's word to them as they minister their muscles to me. <laughs> so we're trade. It's a fair trade. Um, and so uh, if, if you'd like to have service, prayer time, and fellowship or something, uh, I'm looking, I'll probably be up at the Bahamas um, and might turn over to either Mr. Roberts or someone for in two weeks. That's two weeks from tonight. Okay. But we'll finish this next Lord's Day, Lord willing. Okay. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your goodness and care for us. And Lord, we know our sin. We're very familiar with it. We uh, still struggle with it. You know that. And Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that you give us, for the cleansing that you give us, for covering our inherited sin in Christ and for doing that for all the earth, for every person. And Lord, we thank you so much for that, for the breadth of our salvation. And Lord, we also thank you for your help in our war against sin, that you've called us to be holy as you are holy and that you expect us to uh, battle against that and to walk in righteousness in your truth and to please you as you have done so much for us. And Lord, we look forward to that day. We can cast off these bodies of death and come into your presence of life and righteousness and light. Until that day, Lord, we pray you might continue to be with us and help us as we take on sin in our life and as we variously engage it and face temptations, and the world is just so full of them today. Lord, guard our hearts, our eyes, our ears, our thoughts. Help us to discipline ourselves that we might walk in a manner that pleases you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.